Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, a breach in the blue wall of silence with a new documentary about 12 NYPD whistleblowers who raised the alarm about quotas and discrimination. I think a lot of people need to just understand exactly what the police department is. It's basically a business. explosive allegations. They're coming from police officers who are part of what's being called the NYPD 12, who filed a class action lawsuit in federal court. This is not just another lawsuit. 12 cops willing to step up like this, because you're not going to get this again for 100 years. That was a brief clip from the trailer for the new documentary, Crime and Punishment. Though the list of NYPD critics is long and calls for reform come on a near daily basis, rarely do those calls come from within. But this film provides a behind the scenes look at the unprecedented effort of active cops to hold the New York City Police Department accountable. They brought a class action lawsuit against the NYPD alleging quotas for arrests and summonses. The state outlawed quotas in 2010. Crime and Punishment won the Special Jury Award for Social Impact at this year's Sundance Film Festival. Impact. The subject permeates the film. What is the impact on New York City youth who are being over-policed? What impact can the officers have on procedural and structural reform? And now that the film has been in theaters and in festivals, what impact can it have on these issues that plague police-community relations? To discuss this, we're joined by Crime and Punishment's director, Stephen Meng. Welcome to 112BK. Thanks so much for having me. We also have two subjects from the film, a plaintiff in the lawsuit against the department, retired NYPD detective Derek Waller. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have Manuel Gomez, private investigator. We're happy to have you with us. Thank you so much. Um, full disclosure also, the series producer of 112BK, Ross Tuttle, is also a producer on this film. So to start us off, Steve, I want to hear a little bit more about the lawsuit that is at the heart of this story. Sure. So the NYPD 12 is a group of minority officers, black and Latino, who alleged that the department was in violation of its 2010 quota law. They got together over a series of years to um, file what became a historic class action lawsuit, the first time ever for a group of active duty whistleblower cops to actually sue the department for violation of its quota policies. And this outlawing of quotas in 2010, maybe, Derek, this is a question for you. Why are quotas bad? Quotas are bad because you can't put numbers on officers. I mean, when I, when I came out in 1995, it's, it's, always, it's always been a quota. But somewhere along the line, it went from, from one a quarter, four arrests a year, to one to two a month, depending on the command. You know I mean? You know, officers come to work to do their job, and to put numbers on them, it's, it's just unreleasable. And it's, against, it's also against the law. So it's against the law to say you need to bring in this many summonses, have this many arrests per month, for example. Is that right? That's the 2010 law? Sure. But in actuality, what has been happening, uh, as this lawsuit alleges, is that they're still in effect, whether that is explicit or unspoken. Well, they've changed it now. They call it now performance objectives. So the quota is still there. Just the department put a different name on it. And then if you still don't meet your performance objective, which is to get 25 summons a month, then what happens is you get penalized and punished or put into what they call performance monitoring, which is a way of, in essence, torturing a cop's career to do what you want. If not, you lose your vacation time, you will be put on undesirable posts, you'll be transferred, and so forth. 
So they're looking for ways to measure the performance of officers, correct? Yes. And so, Derek, how would your supervisor ask you to meet these quotas? Was this something that they would say to you explicitly, or was it more of a wink-wink situation? You know, I, can, I, can I just go back for a quick second? I think a lot of people need to just understand exactly what the police department is. It's basically a business. And once you can understand the police department is a business, you can understand how, how the quota gives them some power over the officers. So basically anybody in power, whether whether you're a father, whether you're a king of a country, whether you're the owner of a big corporate business, I mean, you don't want to lose power. So, so it gives the police department a lot of power to set quotas for officers because when you don't abide by the quotas, you get into trouble. They take away vacation days, they suspend you, and I've personally been on monitoring since 2004. I mean, I, I come in every, uh, there's been times where I haven't seen anybody in years, and, and I've, I've, have, I've had, you know, decent numbers, or, or, you know, when it's time to make an arrest, you make an arrest. I mean, I don't, I don't go hunting or, like, overly aggressive <clears throat> policing in any neighborhoods, but, you know, if there's a, a situation that's, a, that's an arrestable situation, I take action. I'm not just going to let something go. But um, this, this is a control that they have over officers, and I think people need to understand that, that they have such control over officers pertaining to the quotas. And, Manuel, so some of the issues related mm -hmm. to quotas is that it does lead to over-policing, especially in communities of color. Is that right? Is that what you're seeing in your work? Oh, it is. I mean, like I said, in the past three years, I've had 97 cases that I've had overturned and people released because of quotas. I mean, these quotas now are wrongfully arresting kids, such as in the film, Pedro Hernandez, Angelo Cotto, and you see these people in the film who are been arrested eight, nine times with arrests dismissed, all for cops looking for tickets and summonses. And not only that, but like the Eric Gardner situation, that was a quota situation. He got choked out, right, because they were trying to get a summons. And this is the type of threat that happens to the community when you're forcing cops to do this type of work rather than community policing. Eric Garner, of course, was the Staten Island man who was killed while being arrested by the police. Yes. Um, there's a scene in the film that struck me when you talk about the impact that this has on young men of color, where maybe they have 10 cases that have all been dismissed against them. Tell me what that might lead to and why this actually has such a devastating effect for young men of color in New York. Well, that's a perfect, and I thank you for that question. A lot of my clients that I've helped free they have between, like I said, between five and 10 dismissals on average. And the problem is, is that when they go to apply for a job, now when they go for a city job and it says, well, have you ever been arrested? Now you gotta put down all these dismissals and so forth. And it makes you look bad, it makes you look questionable. Why were you you know, arrested so many times? And they were all dismissed. It raises a big red flag on you. And not only that, but it does something else that Quarters does that Steve's Films touches on, and that's his voided arrests. It creates voided arrests on people without their knowledge. People were given arrest records and not knowing that it's done. And it's a Sixth Amendment violation, which is a procedure in the patrol guide right now, where they give you a avoided arrest, they void it out, then they'll issue a summons, okay? And then when they give you that summons, you walk out thinking you don't, you know, nothing else, just a summons. But in fact is you'll have a voided arrest record generated on you and not informed of it. And then when you go to apply for fire department, EMS, the police department, guess what happens? You have to put down, have you been arrested? And you said no because you didn't know that it was a arrest record was generated. Sure, sure. So, so now the you lose the job. are long, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you, and then you get disqualified for not putting it down, but you're never told. You know, you know this, this documentary, it's special because it's, it's something that 
that neighborhoods of color have known this exists forever. Mm. But it's it's like, you know, you, you hear it and you see it and it's physically there. So, you know, they have something tangible where they can say, wow, we've always known this exists. But that movie, it just brings the, the physical proof to the public, you know. Just just recently, a, a high official, I think it was the chief in the police department, said, you know, in prior administrations, we did have quotas, but, you know, now we don't. So I, I'm just, I have a question for anybody out there, you know, so where did they disappear? Like, like how did they just up and disappear? This is something that was, that, that had roots in the police department forever. So when, when did they just disappear? This is something that's always been there. So I would like to police department to say, like, how and when did they get rid of these quotas? When? Where? Right. And how do you snap your fingers and replace and they, quotas and with disappear. an entirely new measurement system? Derek, did you, did you grow up in New York City? I grew up literally right in the Yankee Stadium, 117th Grand Concourse. I lived in New York all my life. I have, I have military background. I was in the Marine Corps. I, I, I loved my job being a police officer, and I was undercover for six years. And these are issues that there was always quotas back then, and, and it was something that I spoke out about back then. I'm curious about you growing up as a young man of color in New York City and then deciding to become a cop. Why was this important for you to participate both in the lawsuit and in the film? I never thought to be a part of a lawsuit. I just thought that I could give the lawyer some information that might help their lawsuit. It was it was never personal for me. Like me, like I said, I'm retired. I can just go off to another country and be okay. But my fight is for is for the future and for like other officers who know what's going on but are too afraid to speak out. And you know, I, I was always like the community type guy. I love talking to the kids and I would always have kids hanging around me and this this is a fight for them. There's a lot of kids that they love being a police officer. I've had guys, just little kids, put my hat on and walk down the street. They want to touch my hat, touch the uniform. You know, they want to be police officers, but they're scared. Mm -hmm. They're scared because of situations, their family members and their friends and nephews that's been put in. So what the police department is doing by harassing these these children in the neighborhood is, is causing like a, a, a fan effect. Like a lot of people are getting affected by it, not just, not just the people that are touched by the summonses, but their family members and so forth. Absolutely. And there's a scene in the film that I love that shows you diffusing a situation at a bodega, and the type of community engagement that you see, I think really stands out as an example of excellent community policing, where you de-escalate a situation. This type of scene actually appears throughout the film, where Steve, you really have an unprecedented level of access with the NYPD 12 and other let me, people. Let me say yeah. something about that, just one second. You know, a lot of people see me, and they, they talk about that same situation, but did you see the white officer that was standing there with me? He had no idea what was going on, because he's like, yo, this is not what they teach me. They don't teach me to de-elevate situation, the white guy, the white cop was probably thinking, well, I should have locked this guy up for that, you know? And he but that's, that's what they teach you. And, and I'm curious also, I want to come back to that question, but, you know, if we're talking about removing <clears throat> data points and metrics in this type of quota system, how do you measure a police officer's impact if we're talking about these more soft touch skills that involve community policing? Well, the department has actually claimed to in, improve the and diversify the measurements for officer productivity, yet what we're hearing is that in precincts, still the two measurements that at the end of the day count are arrests and summonses. So, you know, that's a, it's a big question. Like, how do we get access to that data as far as precinct by precinct officer activity and see how officers are then quote-unquote performing as a result? Sure. So if that encounter at the bodega doesn't result in a collar you're not rewarded for that. Is and, that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that is really interesting about sort of releasing this project now after many years of spending time with these guys and is that uh, this is not anti-cop, not even the slightest. And all you have to do is watch the film to know that. These are cops who 
loved the job, joined because they believed that they could contribute to the community, saw their, the communities they grew up in ravished by crime, but also saw ways that they could improve the police community relations, this idea of the social contract, right, that they wanted to go out there and they felt like Derek and everybody else in this film, like Manny Gomez when he was a cop as well, that they could apply very critical skills to complex social situations that would really demonstrate nuanced discretion. Because at the end of the day, when you have a numerical pressure to achieve a certain kind of productivity, the first thing that's gonna go out the door is officer discretion. And if that happens even one time, the kind of like Orwellian cycle to, for an individual like Pedro Hernandez, who we see in the film, pressure to take a guilty plea, right, is, is tremendous to extract yourself from even one falsified arrest. And right. Well, I was going to say, but you know, one of the key points that this film points out, which Steve ironically catches this so completely, is the fact that cops have nowhere to turn to to report corruption. There is no oversight over the police department. There is none. And this is something talked about from the inception of the police department, and even in the most famous movie from Serpico as well. They still have nowhere to turn. Guys like Derek, guys like at the end of the movie, which was one of my favorite scenes uh, with Edwin Raymond, and he's being penalized for having discretion as an officer, and now they're trying to do reverse racism on him. And there's no way for us to report that type of corruption. There should be an ability, a mechanism, and this is something that we've been trying to work on and, and I'm working on as well. But that's one aspect of this film that Steve shows, and I hope it resonates with the community and the public that oversight is needed. And then another aspect that Steve shows in this film and touches on it briefly is that in the Pedro Hernandez case, the prosecutorial misconduct. Oversight is needed across the board. We've mentioned Pedro Hernandez a few times now, so Steve, maybe you can just fill us in on that, on that storyline. Sure. Well, after spending 12 months in Rikers for uh, attempted murder charges, he was uh, found to be, as you, you, I don't want to do a, create a spoiler, but, you know, he was ex fully exonerated. And, and he was 17 and spent a year at Rikers. That's is that right. right. And, you know, this is not a friendly, easy place to get through. So there was no apology given to him. There was no reparations. It was just the Bronx DA's office saying, well, it turns out that our witnesses have given us conflicting of testimony and they couldn't find probable cause to sustain the charges. And in a film full of outrages, his storyline I found to be one of the most outrageous. And I'm curious about, has there been response to the film from the NYPD, from city councilors, other politicians? Well, the interesting thing is like four days after we got back from Sundance, we were very lucky to get the Social Impact Filmmaking Award, as you mentioned. Congratulations. Um, thanks. There was uh, a message sent right by the chief of department, Terrence Monaghan, basically sent, uh, stating to all uniformed officers that essentially there's no quota and anybody who enforces a quota will be punished. Two weeks after that, Chief O'Neill issued another st a memo saying that all uniformed officers would be required to take no quota retraining. And incidentally, for the most part, you know, he was saying that if anybody's wondering, there's no quota. And so this is a really important kind of moment to look at. You know, is this a, a sincere, sincere shift in the direction and practice, or was this perhaps a seeds being planted for a more defensive kind of dismissal of the claims of the film? Because what we are alleging is that there are still quotas that have to be addressed, even if the numbers of arrests and summonses have dropped since the stop and frisk era, and they have that does not suggest or become equivalent to the idea that quotas have absolutely been eradicated from law enforcement. But you see, the chief wasn't sincere. 
because he changed the title to performance objectives. So they still have the quota. And my personal feeling is, is like what Steve just said, it was to dismiss the movie's allegations of the quotas. And we don't know that, but you know, the, the point of the film is we want to engage a really robust conversation. And yet we've gotten a lot of well wishes from city council, from some assembly people. And yet, no, but nobody's really come out and said, all of you who shared your stories in the film, the producers, we would love to come have you come and meet us or do a screening at city council or come to the mayor's office to discuss what are quite explosive allegations, right? So no one's reached out to you directly. They're just sort of talking around the film. Absolutely not. And that's a really big question because this is one of the biggest, most historic class action lawsuits that touches on a lot of different aspects of criminal injustice that are in dire need of more robust conversation. This isn't just a shedding light on the issue moment. This is has to be a moment where the public politicians and the media recognize once and for all that officers like Derek Waller and folks like P.I. Gomez are not just fighting this because they enjoy being retaliated against or being under the scrutiny of the department and the public in the city. It's because they see a, a huge public interest urgency. Right, absolutely. And, and many, if not all, of the officers in the NYPD 12 faced retaliation as a result of coming forward as part of this class you know, action it's, lawsuit. It's just not us, man. There's, I mean, I've, I've traveled with the documentary Crime and Punishment to quite a few states. I mean, I've had many other officers pull me aside and say, hey, you know, what, what, what can I do? Or I'm going through the same thing. And it, it's not even, it's in other countries, too. You know, so a lot of other officers going through this, but nobody nobody has a place to turn. I'm hoping what men's proposed. I, I really hope somebody will hear this because, I mean, we as officers, like I said, I was an officer 21 or something years, and we make complaints, and we make complaints, and we make complaints, and they go absolutely nowhere. They sit on the police commissioner's desk, and he gets the final say-so, and they get nowhere. But when it's time for him to take care of his chiefs, who also do a lot of corruption, then he takes care of that on the, on the low tip. And you know, he's right. You can't have a police department check itself, monitor itself, correct itself, and punish itself. And now, because of this film, the NAACP, which I'm going to be speaking to tonight, the National NAACP, reached out to me and wants to support my efforts to make a new agency to have oversight, which Derek was talking about, because he's right. We've been to multiple states, and every state we and I have been to, Derek, we have a cop or somebody come up to us and say, somebody. what do yeah. we do? How do? Who do we turn to? Nobody. And so now I'm trying to make this national effort with my brothers and Derek and the rest of them to make this happen. So, you know, I thank Steve for bringing out crime and punishment because it has shed light on the problem that's been there and that's been hidden. So it, we've talked about how there hasn't been outreach on behalf of local politicians. What's your vision for the film going forward in terms of getting it in front of a lot of people? Where can people see this film? Are there screenings coming up? Sure. You know, I just want to mention one thing. So your esteemed colleague, Ross Tuttle, and I, you know, we've working, been working on this issue together for many years. This is our fourth project, actually, trying to talk about this general issue. And what was, in a way, the impetus for making this final film, right? This is another four-year block of filming that was the result of us trying to basically, once and for all, actually create a humanized portrait, right? Because on, on some level, there's a need to put kind of human scale information and stakes onto this issue, which the public has been unwilling to really engage with on a sustained level. You know, there's a lack of oxygen in this media landscape for, you know, reasons that we all know. And and so there's this question at the end of the day, like how do we have a sustained conversation and focus on what these officers, the families, 
private investigator Gomez have been sharing in the film. And this is that moment where we are trying to put that to your audience, to the public, to the media and politicians in New York City. Absolutely. And I think your film does such a lovely job of humanizing an issue that sort of floating around in the ether. You know, we know terms like stop and frisk and racial profiling and quotas, but really seeing the impact that it has on the lives of young men of color and also the officers mm -hmm. who come forward and say, this is not the type of policing that I signed up to do. There needs to be systemic change. It's really amazing to see it from that, that human angle. Yeah. And one last thing I'll just add is that, you know, we've spent a lot of time with all of these individuals and as sort of media makers, journalists, and filmmakers, you don't just dive into something to propagandize an issue for the sake of it. You find credible people who are working hard, who are honest, who have real claims and real evidence when you put a film like this together. We spent many years vetting all of this information, all of their stories, their backgrounds, so that we could put something out that was credible, that was truthful, and that was putting on the table real urgent concerns. So. This also impacts, you said, not only communities of color, but also police. It impacts a lot of police because a lot of people out there don't know that a lot of police officers have a very high rate of suicide. And that that's basically by stress. I mean, there's a lot of stress being a police officer. A lot of people don't know, so they, they kill themselves and shoot themselves. And the police department says, oh, you have all these places to go to, but you can't go to anybody. When you have a problem, you don't want to take it home, so you, you, you kill yourself. The bottom line is they mostly um, target minority communities, but at the end of the month, they're going to target anybody to get those numbers. And that's the point that I want to end on, and that is we are all besieged by the, what this film shows. This is a systemic problem that goes nationwide. The NYPD's procedures are copied by more than 38 states. The NYPD Police Department is the largest police force in the world. They copy our procedures. When you copy the procedures, you copy the problems. Anybody thinks this is just a black and Hispanic thing, they're wrong. This transcends color. It is a problem that's systemic and national, and Steve's film touches on it 100%. So this is a film that needs to be seen. Where can people see it, and how can people engage with this issue? Well, we are working very hard on a social impact and community screening tour, and um, that campaign is something that we want to put in you know, community centers, organizations that are working on these issues, and also classrooms. It's also available and streaming on Hulu, which you can get for free with a one-month trial. So this is something that anybody can watch. And if anybody has problems with any of those uh, you know, methods, then drop us a line. We're easy to find online. Um, one thing I want to just also close on is that what all of these people also are trying to do is bring legitimacy back to the uniform. When you look at sort of the, where we are as a nation divided repeatedly on race and policing, these are a group of officers and people with law enforcement experience that understand that that social contract that has been broken can actually be rehabilitated by listening to the community. This is like something that Bratton cites in Sir Robert Peel's Nine Principles on Policing, right? That police activity should be based on the approval of the public policing actions. And so this is something that all of these guys and women have been trying to draw attention to, that we don't have the full approval of the public in certain neighborhoods. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to end there. But once again, the film is Crime and Punishment. And I want to thank you all for coming on the show. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank, you so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. After 250 firefighters responded to the seven-alarm fire that broke out in the parking garage of the Kings Plaza Shopping Center on Monday morning, police arrested a man for starting the blaze. 
The 23-year-old man told the press, I'm sorry, I apologize, as he was being taken out of the 63rd Precinct station house on Monday evening. He had apparently been told to stop sleeping in the garage. It was announced Monday morning at a city hall briefing that the city would earmark $4.1 million for legal assistance, specifically to separated children and unaccompanied minors still housed in New York City. The funds are intended to aid 40 remaining separated children and nearly 900 other children without legal representation, as well as to provide risk assessment and screenings for those seeking to sponsor immigrant children. The money comes out of the $30 million that the city has already allocated for immigrant legal services. In a passionate speech on Saturday at the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network, New York City Schools Chancellor Richard Carranza said, quote, if you look at every indicator of a healthy school system, black and Latino students are not being served. Carranza reinforced his resolute stance on getting rid of the single test admissions process at the city's eight specialized schools. He noted that New York is the only American city that requires a test for admission to a public school, asking his audience, is that justice for our kids? On Friday, the Daily News published an investigation based on documents and interviews that uncovered at least half a dozen school bus drivers who were permitted to shuttle busloads of kids despite serious criminal records, including a number of DWIs. The source was Eric Reynolds, an investigator in the Office of Pupil Transportation and retired NYPD detective who noticed the criminal records and refused to recertify the drivers. Reynolds affirms that this problem plagues the roster of 8,500 drivers in the school bus system, saying the vetting process is historically too lax. For more on these and other stories, check out Brooklyner at BKLYNER.com. That's the show for today. Tomorrow, Jarrett Murphy will be back to talk with Republican State Senator Marty Golden from Bay Ridge. He occupies a seat the Democrats are targeting in November in hopes of taking back control of the Senate. Hope you can join us. Woman 2 BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, except when she's off getting married. Congratulations, Ashley. So for the next couple of weeks, it will be hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabella Cantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>